Well, the next time I'm at the farmer's market, I've decided I'm going to ask one question of everybody I talk to. And that one question is going to be, what is the mission of the church? And I just want to see what the responses are, both from Christians and non-Christians alike. And I have a feeling that when I ask that question, I'm going to get as many answers as people that I ask. And the reason for that is because I think there is a lot of confusion today in regards to what the mission of the church is. And I think in large part that's due to the fact that there are mixed messages coming from the church itself. But the reality is that the church as a whole, as it manifests itself locally and globally, has only one mission regardless of denomination, size, and location. And that one mission is clearly spelled out here in Matthew chapter 28. We call it the Great Commission. It's here that Jesus not only expresses what the mission of the church is, but he addresses how that mission is to be carried out as well as why. And I think by the time we're through tonight, maybe there will be a few of us at least and maybe more who will have been challenged in some way in regards to what this mission is and how we carry it out and the why of the mission or maybe even a combination of two or maybe all of them. So with that said, if you would please stand in the honor of God's word and the reading of it. We are going to read the entire passage again. Wes did a great job. But I do want to do it, to, do it again as we often do just to get it into the front of our minds. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we thank you for this time that we can gather around your word. We pray that you would grant us ears to hear. Would you allow us to hear what you have spoken? Allow us to hear you speak through what you have already spoken. And may you bend our wills to yours. May we submit ourselves to the the authority of your word. And again, would you fill us with your spirit. Increase and strengthen our faith. May we see Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Our outline is going to look like this. We're going to look at the authority... Uh, The actions and the assurance of the Great Commission. Um, To save time tonight, I sent an email out. Those of you who are on our email list, I sent an email out and I also sent it out via the church app. I sent uh, what was going to be the first point uh, tonight 
And then realize that we don't have 45 minutes, we only have 35 minutes. And so to try to stay in that time frame, I sent the first point to you. Uh, there's also a stack of about 10 or so of those first points out there between the bulletins. If you would like to grab one of those, it sets a little bit of the context uh, for us. Uh, it's not nece- necessary really in regards to where we're going, but it, it does provide us some some background and, and thoughts in regards to verses 16 and 17 that I think uh, would be helpful. So if you haven't read through that, grab that uh, as you go. That being said, let's let's look first at the authority in verse 18. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Uh, it's prophetic language from Daniel 7. Uh, it's the perfect cum- culmination of this letter that Matthew is writing that began with the genealogy of David and continued in those first couple of chapters with the Magi's search of uh, or search for and Herod's fear of a new king. It's the rightful claim of the one who rode into Jerusalem. We looked at two weeks ago who rode into Jerusalem through or, or in a royal procession. Uh, he who claimed to be the messianic king and refused to take what Satan offered in the wilderness, which was um, much more on a limited basis. He now is taking that. Which the Father offers him in all its fullness. He was claiming authority over all places, all things, at all times, over all people. He was the one who the Father had highly exalted above all things and had been given the name that was above every name. So that at his name, the name of Jesus... Every knee would rightfully bow and every tongue would rightfully confess that he was the Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's who Jesus was. And there was nothing outside of his purview. That is his claim by saying all authority has been given to me. Everything and everyone was subject to him. He was the one who ruled and reigned. He is the one who rules and reigns over everything that had been created through him. It was Jesus who had promised to build his church. If you remember back in chapter 16 as we began our study. Because he had the authority to do so. He was the one that said death itself would not prevail against it. Why? Because he knew that he would defeat death. As he just had a few days earlier of him saying this. It was Jesus who had all authority and was calling and commissioning this ragtag, fickle-hearted group of men. To build up and to be a part of the perpetual growing of the church. Another way to put it would be that Jesus sovereignly rules over all things including his church. Therefore his mission, this mission, the mission of the church is guaranteed. It's a guaranteed mission. It's not a mission that we devise We come up with on our own. It's not a mission that we manufacture. It's not a mission um, 
that, that we have created in our own minds and the successful completion of it is not dependent upon us and our techniques and our creativity and our programs and our ability to manipulate responses. Really, the bottom line is we don't build the kingdom. He does. In the words of one pastor I read this week, he said, we are to be faithful But ultimately, Jesus is not coming to help us in our task of the Great Commission. He is inviting us to join Him in His great work of bringing nations into the white-hot enjoyment of the glory of His love and grace. There's a big difference. And brothers and sisters, that should give us confidence and security and hope and peace as we begin what is now our ninth month as a church. It should give us confidence as we move ahead and, and that despite, despite what twists and turns might occur, despite what God might providentially do, we know that Jesus has all authority and He is our head. We are members of His kingdom. We are bondservants of His. We are to submit to Him and do what He calls us to do in the manner in which He calls us to do it. And we can rest. Which brings us to... The actions of the commission in verse 19, he says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So with the foundation of his authority in place, he then lays out the specific mission, the specific call, the actual commission or the instruction itself. And it involves one imperative that is broken down into three, three facets, if you will. And that one imperative is to make disciples. We are to be about making disciples. They aren't simply to be converts. They are to be disciples who take up their cross and follow Jesus. And it's very important for us at this point to, to clarify a couple of things as we think about making disciples. And the first is this. In one sense, we're talking about something Well, we're talking about something that they could not do in and of themselves. It wasn't something that they were going to be able to do on their own. Because what he's talking about doing actually requires a heart change. To become a disciple, it it takes a change of heart. It takes a transformation. And that transformation is only possible through the work of the Spirit. That is why Jesus began by saying, all authority has been given to me because it's his authority that was the foundation upon which disciples would be made. Salvation is of the Lord and no one else. It's a work of the Spirit, every bit of it. It's the Spirit that regenerates. It's the Spirit that applies the work of salvation, which includes not only our justification, but our sanctification as well. It's all by the Spirit. So as I've already said, we are dependent upon the Lord Jesus and His Spirit to fulfill this command. But second, we can't forget at the same time that the apostles were to be involved. He wants them to be involved. He chose them to be involved. And it's no different for you and I today as we think about Fulfilling this great commission as a church. You and I have been called to that. We're not charged to maximize our regular attendance. We're not charged to get people to fill out cards or to raise hands or to walk aisles or to pray prayers. 
We're not even charged to simply make converts. We're charged to make disciples. We're charged to make disciples who take up their crosses and follow Jesus. And it remains a work of the Spirit, absolutely. But there is something that we are called to go and do. He has equipped us to be about this mission. We are to be involved in the process of making disciples of those around us. He's, he's, because He is also, not only has He ordained the ends, He's ordained the means. And I want to run through what those means are as he presents them here. And I want to wait till the end to, to apply each of those so that we'll, we'll work through these in, uh, in pretty quick order. First, he's making disciples involves going. It involves going. And honestly, there's a debate here about how this word should be translated. If you do any kind of reading today, you'll see it's, uh, it's out there. And, and actually, I, I found out it was a much bigger debate than I thought. Uh, but some prefer to translate this as, as you are going. Uh, but others choose to um, translate it as, as it is here, as go. And as uh, my good friend Chris Miller says, I don't want to draw out all the pots and pans here of the study. I just let you know that I side with those who believe it should be translated go. And, and I like that, and not only because of the language and the structure of the language, I think it's a better rendering because what it means is our going is to be intentional. It means that we aren't just making disciples as as we go, and, and there's... There, it's tempting to think about that and to like that and as we go along the way and, and as opportunities present themselves. But I think that that does away with some of this intentionality, some of the purposefulness that Christ has in mind here. We should have an agenda. We, there, there is something that we should be about doing. And it is making disciples. And notice here that he says, as I mentioned to the children, he says, go and make disciples of all nations. When Luke is describing this encounter, he says that the, uh, Jesus says that the, 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 the disciples are to go to Jerusalem, Judea, and the uttermost parts of the earth, which the disciples do. And as far as they were concerned, it was no longer about Israel. It was about Jew and Greek, slave and free, men and women. People of all ages, boys and girls, every ethnicity, every background, every experience, every social or socioeconomic status. It means because Christ has authority over everything, we are to go everywhere. There are no boundaries to where we are to go. So it begins with going. But secondly, making disciples also involves baptizing. Particularly in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we ask, well, why is that important? Well, while we overtly and specifically hear and see Jesus pointing to His own deity, while we overtly and specifically see Him pointing to the fact that salvation and disciple-making are the work of a triune God... There are also a couple of things implied. One is that making disciples includes evangelism or sharing the gospel. Because baptism is a sign of initiation. In the words of our confession, it, it says baptism is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. 
of our engrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of our giving unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in the newness of life. And of course, it is the gospel that is the power unto this salvation that baptism points. So it's implied that we are to evangelize and to share the gospel. And secondly, it implies that that the disciples or to make disciples or making disciples is not done in isolation or in parachurch type organizations because having begun by going and scattering, it's implied that they return and gather together as a body because that's where baptism takes place. Again, in our confession, baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament for the solemn admission into the visible church. It is to be administered by a minister of the gospel and is not only for those that actually profess faith in and obedience unto Christ, but also for the infants of one or both believing parents. And it is to be continued in the church until the end of the world. So by saying it is that we are to go and to baptize, Jesus is saying we're to go and to share the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to go out and we're to come back and gather And to live among ourselves and to apply that sacrament, to apply that sign of baptism to those who believe and to their children. And to experience discipleship within within the church. And then thirdly, so we're to go and we're to baptize. And thirdly, he says we're to go and we're to teach. As one pastor said, the mission focuses on the initial and continual verbal declaration of the gospel, the announcement of Christ's death and resurrection, and the life found in Him when we repent and believe. And that kind of teaching involves the whole counsel of God, because the whole counsel of God is about Christ and points to Him. It's about life in Him. And so there's nothing that we leave out. And it's not simply teaching for the sake of knowledge. We see in his words that it's, it's a teaching that leads to a keeping and a guarding and a doing of all that's included in the word. It's a, it's a teaching that leads to action. Doctrine, very, very, very important. But as Paul says in Titus 2, we're to teach things that are fitting for or according with sound doctrine. Because again, in Paul's words, all of Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the focus of our teaching is beyond just hearing because saving faith is an active faith. And a disciple doesn't just learn what the teacher teaches, he does what the teacher does. She does what the teacher does. That's what following is. We talked about that a few weeks ago. We're to take up our cross and follow him. It's costly. There is a change. And that means the teaching, the teaching must maintain a clear distinction between law and gospel. And the teaching also must include a steady and repetitive diet of the truth concerning our guilt, God's grace and our living out of gratitude. Over and over and over again. And I don't know about you, but we read through that and we think, and as, as I'm sure the disciples were, and one of the reasons I wanted you to have the context of that is 
That's daunting. And it's a daunting task, particularly for a bunch of guys who had just turned their back on him. They've got to put their failures behind them because he's telling them to move ahead. And we're no different. So it is a daunting task, but that's why he says in verse 20, And behold, here's the assurance, Behold, I am with you to the end of the age. I am with you to the end of the age. Yes, it's dawning, but Jesus looks at them and says, it's okay. I'm going to be with you. I will always be with you. I will be with you until the fullness of time has come and I return. And we think, well, wait a minute. You've just said you're going to be with us, but also we know that he's leaving. Right? We know how this works out in the end. So we know he's about to ascend and he must return. So how is it that he's always going to be with them? How is he always with us? And of course, the answer is by his spirit. Listen to these words from John 14 and 16. Jesus says, and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Words that they had heard. Words that would undoubtedly come to their minds. Why? Because the spirit, Jesus has promised that the spirit would do that. So they hear those words I will be with you. And they remember what he had said by the spirit that he will send the spirit who will be with them forever. So in the face of that daunting task, they are reassured that his presence will be with them. He will be in them. He will be working to bring about what the father had determined prior to the foundation of the world. So when we think about this commission for us, what does that look like? Because we have one mission. The mission doesn't change, as I said when we began. So, but what does it look like for us? And I want to wrap up with three particular points, one for each of these actions. Uh, And I do want to uh, make sure you understand the, the last two Um, Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert have written a book called What is the Mission of the Church? And it was very uh, helpful for me as I was organizing my thoughts regarding these last two points. But let's look first at our going. What does our going look like? And as I mentioned to the children, while we are, of course, to go locally and we're to go uh, within the state and across the country and around the world, we need to realize that we live in a time And in a specific place where the nations are being brought to us. 
The nations are down the street. The nations are around the corner. The, the nations are within our community. And we need to realize that we don't need necessarily to go to India to reach someone from India or someone who has family in India. We don't need to go to Africa. We don't need to go to Asia. The Lord is bringing the nations to us. Now, if he calls us to go, we should go. If he calls us to go, we should support those who go. We're going to hear next week as we do every month in the missionary moment that we support uh, national and international missionaries in some pretty tough locations. And we continue to do that. But we mustn't think that the international missions is left up to those who go and move around to the other side of the world. We have an opportunity where we are to be involved in international missions. We, we don't have to go far to get outside of our comfort zones. To speak to someone from somewhere else. And that international missions is personal. It's messy. It's work. It's time consuming. It takes effort. It takes resources. It's what we would call incarnational. And that means that it's done face to face. It's involved in personal interaction. It's not about video, social media, or mobile apps. We can walk out our front door. And we can go and reach the nations for Christ. They're here. Second, our baptizing. As I mentioned, baptizing implies a scattering, a going out, a sharing of the gospel, loving our neighbor as we share the gospel with them. And it also involves a gathering, a coming back, a discipling and a living and a loving, a living with one another and a loving of one another in the context of the local church. Therefore, we scatter And when we gather, so when we scatter and when we gather, we need to make sure of something specifically. And that is this. We need to continually communicate two things. One, we need to communicate that there is something worse than poor communication, bad marriages, unruly kids, unemployment, financial problems and social injustice. There's an issue of sin and hell. It's worse than any other presenting problem. I'm not saying we don't, we don't address those. We don't ignore those. But we can never forget that, there is, that, that, that there's not something worse. Say that right? We need to always remember that there is something worse. At the same time, we need to also remember that there is something better than great communication, flourishing marriages, moral and obedient children, great jobs, financial prosperity, and social justice. What is better than all those things? Salvation, eternal life with the Lord Jesus, being in the presence of God. And we need to remember that. We don't need to shy away from that. And here's, here's a quote from that book that I mentioned. If we could somehow remake the world right now into a place with healthy relationships, meaningful work, adequate provision, and equal treatment for all, a place where the good guys are on top and the bad guys get their just desserts, we would still not have heaven. He says we would have Bedford Falls at the end of It's a Wonderful Life. 
The good life might be good. But without Christ, it's not the goal of Christian mission. Worship is the end of the story, not human flourishing. Because a redesigned world is nothing without delight in God. Christian mission must always aim at making, sustaining, and establishing worshipers. We must keep that in the forefront of our mind. We can meet needs of others as we love well. But there is something worse. And there is something better than what is typically presented these days. And finally, our teaching. You know, in many circles, and I've been doing this a long time, longer than I would like to think, but the teaching aspect of discipleship, because there's a focus uh, on uh, teaching toward obedience, as there should be, uh, there is this tendency for, um, for it to produce people who are exhausted physically, emotionally, and mentally. And they're exhausted because it comes from man-centered expectations. And over the last 10 or 15 years, it's been the expectations of this radical type of discipleship that inevitably leaves people feeling as though they're failures. Because they're falling short and they're never doing enough. And that things are always terrible because they never measure up. And that's part of the problem. When I said earlier, we need to make sure there's a distinction between law and gospel. So our teaching should focus on the gospel and the message of God's grace, not necessarily upon that radical sacrifice. That kind of sacrifice will come as we focus on Christ's radical sacrifice for us. We shouldn't forsake and ignore the imperatives of Scripture. We didn't do that in Ephesians. We didn't preach the first three chapters and then move on to some more declarative. We finished Ephesians. We preached through the imperatives. And by the end, I was ready to get to more grace. But we we must do it because we're preaching the whole counsel of God. We are called to teach toward obedience. But we must remember that the foundation upon which good works are based and the fountain from which good works flow is the gospel. It's... Delighting in God, it's cherishing and celebrating our justification, it's growing in, in our understanding and appreciation for our union with Christ and our union with one another. And that not only begins with, but is, I believe, completely dependent upon our, our time here each and every week in corporate worship. I believe you've heard me say before, well... I'm going to say it again. In our study of Ephesians chapter 4, I said something specifically that I want to share again. Christ has given the church a gift, the teaching ministry of the church, through pastors and teachers. And He's given that ministry to the church so that the gospel specifically and the whole counsel of God might be taught and preached on a regular basis. Because it's through the Word and the Spirit that faith is created. And it's through the Word and Spirit and sacrament that we are filled by the Spirit and our faith is increased and strengthened. It's through the Word and Spirit and sacrament that that we're sanctified. It's through the Word and Spirit and sacrament that our hearts are renovated was the word we used back in Ephesians chapter 3. 
the word and the spirit and sacrament helps us and, and grants us the ability to grow and actually grows us up in enabling grace. So that we're not only able, but we desire to to serve one another using the gifts that he's given to us. And it's as we exercise those gifts among one another that we're built up into Christ who is our head. In other words, it's by the word and spirit and sacrament that disciples are made. That's how disciples are made. So disciple making can be and is experienced in smaller settings like small groups. It it can and is experienced in one-on-one relationships as older men meet with younger men and older women meet with younger women. Uh, It's experienced in homes as you as parents pour into your children, teaching them you're discipling your children. I saw an article today that my mother-in-law put on uh, Facebook um, and, and it talked about the most important parents, the most important Opportunity you have to disciple is right there around your dinner table. But the primary means through which that takes place is through our corporate gathering on Sundays. And so in in light of that, I I pray that we, again, as I prayed earlier, that we would be given a, a desire to go and to baptize and to teach, that we would go to all nations. And I pray that the Lord would use us greatly for His kingdom's sake. And in the words of Acts chapter 2, may we continue, may the Lord continue to add to our number those who are being saved. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.